And if you would, take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24. In the first 12 verses. Luke chapter 24. Verses 1 through 12. I hear some pages, so I'll give a few more seconds. I know most folks are scrolling in their Bibles rather than flipping in their Bibles, and that's okay too. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women uh, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for it is life to us, it reveals Christ to us, and it is the only way that we can know salvation. So we praise you that you've not left us without a revelation of who you are, So this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection, help us, every one of us, by the power of your Spirit, to see the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, and to have our hearts and minds transformed by the power of your Word this morning as your Spirit works among us. It's the name of Christ I pray. Amen. In 1815, General Wellington of Great Britain crossed the English Channel to go and fight Napoleon Bonaparte and his French army, the people in England were very excited to hear news back from the battle uh, as to the success or demise of uh, their English countrymen, and so they devised a plan. One of the civilians would go up into the tower in Winchester Cathedral. He would look out over the, uh, the English Channel and would find military ships that would relay information to him by flashes of light. He would then go home and report on how the battle was going. Well, this seemed like a great plan, and so uh, it was until there was a very foggy day when the first ship came, and the message sent was, Wellington defeated the enemy. Incredible news. Wellington defeated the enemy, except for that it was foggy, and the messenger only received the first part of the message. Wellington defeated So he returned home and 
told the people of England, and they were in utter despair, devastated by this news, knowing that their key general had been defeated by Napoleon, only to find out a few days later how wrong they were. And you can imagine the, the joy, the relief, the excitement at this truth that Wellington had defeated the enemy. And I, I think that the disciples must have had an incredible amount of that same feeling when they saw the stone rolled into place. Jesus is defeated. That this one that they had watched, this phony trial, this scourging, this beating that he had received, this mockery, the nails that were driven into his flesh, the agony with which Jesus cried out in pain, Jesus defeated. They watched this one whom they had watched and walked with for three years. They had watched him heal the sick. They had watched him give sight to the blind. They had watched him raise the dead. They had watched him walk on water and literally speak to storms and the storm obey him. That one is dead and he's been placed in a tomb. Jesus is defeated. And now, three days later, You've heard the eyewitness account read this morning from Luke's gospel. Three days later, the only thing they know to be true is that Jesus' body is gone. He's no longer in the tomb. All of the gospel accounts, we've been walking through the book of Mark here at Poplar Spring. And so if you've been with us, we've been walking through verse by verse of the book of Mark. All of those gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record the same detail. The body of Jesus was no longer in the tomb. Now, to be fair this morning, to be fair, we need to realize that the fact that the tomb was empty does not prove that Jesus was alive. It simply proves that the tomb was empty, right? It could be circumstantial evidence. You know what that means if you watch any of the, the crime shows that come on TV these days, Law & Order, CSI, NCIS. As the viewer of the show, you're watching it unfold, and you see something happen in the show that you think that for sure incriminates so-and-so, except for that when you get to the court room scene and the evidence is presented, it's dismissed as circumstantial evidence. That means that the evidence doesn't have to conclude or come to the conclusion that uh, the, 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 the thing happened. Bob murdered Sally or whatever the case may be. So this morning, as we see an empty tomb in the text of Luke, it doesn't have to mean that Jesus is alive. I think it's upon us as hearers, as readers of the Word of God, to look at the evidence and ask serious questions. I would propose the, the most serious question that any of us could be asking today. What does the evidence say? What does an empty tomb mean? Luke's gospel shows us. We just read it. The women went to the tomb and they came back and told Jesus' own disciples, the 11. They didn't immediately begin singing the old hymn, Up from the Grave He Arose, or the one that we started out with this morning, Christ is Risen. Why? Because their response was unbelief. Verse 11, you see where this occurs in Luke chapter 24. It says, but these words seem to them to be an idle tale or a fairy tale, a myth, a legend, and it says they did not believe them. They didn't believe the women in their report. So maybe you're here this morning and you're skeptical. You've heard it. You've been raised in the South. You've heard the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, but you're a bit skeptical yourself. 
Maybe you're here because a family member guilt-tripped you into coming. It just felt like the, the thing to do on an Easter Sunday, a bit obligated, again, because we were raised in the South, and that just seems like what you do on Easter Sunday morning. Well, you're in good company. The disciples were skeptical, too. They didn't believe at first. And really, this is the view that most of the world has today. A lot of people will say, whatever I know about the so-called resurrection of Jesus, however heartwarming that story may be, at best it seems like religious superstition to me. An idle tale. A fairy tale. I would ask you for the next few moments that we have together, let's zoom in to these disciples, to the account the scriptures give us, and let's ask honest questions. Honest questions of the text. We've been studying through Mark's gospel. And when you put all of those gospel accounts together, what you're left with are a group of men, in particular these 11 men, right? Judas is gone, he's betrayed Jesus. So these 11 men that have been following Jesus 24-7 for three years. They've been traveling with Jesus and doing ministry. They've seen him do incredible miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've heard him predict his own death and resurrection and yet, we're left with these 11 men that are demoralized, defeated. They're even paralyzed by fear at Jesus' death. Gospel of John actually says that by evening, they had locked themselves away because they were afraid of the, the consequences that may come to them because they had identified themselves with Jesus, right? They're his disciples. He's just been executed, and so they're accomplices. So they've locked themselves away in fear for their own lives, I think that brings up a question. How then do you account for the incredible change that we see in these disciples? You may be wondering, well, what, what change are you talking about, Matt? Well, remember, they're in hiding. They're afraid for their own lives. Peter's denied Jesus three times, if you remember back in the story. Jesus has, or, or Peter's been asked by this young kid, weren't you one of Jesus' followers? Didn't I see you with Jesus? And he goes, no, I don't even know the guy. He's asked three times this question, and all three times he says, no, I have no idea who you're talking about. I don't know him. I've not been with him. Why? Because he's, he's scared to death, even of a kid's accusation. These guys, defeated, paralyzed with fear, in a few days, sadness is going to be replaced by joy. Fear is going to be replaced with faith. Skepticism and doubt transformed into bold, courageous proclamation that Jesus is alive. Yes, even Peter, the one who denied Jesus to a kid, is going to be so emboldened in faith that he'll actually give up his life. Crucified like Jesus because he won't shut up talking about Jesus' resurrection. How do you account for that? What, 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 how, do we, how do we reason with that, that kind of a transformation? Well, if you're interested in reading those accounts of these men and, and how they're uh, turned from, from fear and doubt into to bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus, you can find that in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is filled with those stories. And it's in the book of Acts where we see Peter, again, the one who denied Jesus, say this. In the book of Acts, Peter says, Men of Israel, by the way, the same men that just crucified Jesus, he's, he's preaching to, his, uh, to the audience that killed the guy that he's fixing to talk about. Men of Israel, hear these words. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He's saying, you saw the things he was doing. 
that one, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This didn't catch God off, off, off hand. He wasn't caught off guard by this. This was his plan. You crucified and killed him. And by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Those words preached to the same men who killed Jesus only weeks after this guy was cowering in the corner because he was scared to death that he would be associated with Jesus. I'm going to step out on a limb here and just assume in a room or a tent this size with this many people, there are some here this morning that would need to give careful consideration to the claims of the Christian faith, primarily the hinge of the entire Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. I think it would be safe this morning to assume that there are probably folks here because mama and daddy raised them in church. They've heard the stories and they think, oh yeah, well, that's, that's obviously true. I've never really given it much thought, but I know the story. Friends, we can't just believe that a man literally died and came back to life and that have no implications on the way we live. There may be some here today just say, I don't, I don't really care, Matt. Uh, I've not really thought about it more than three minutes, whether it's true or not. Because I don't think it affects me. Two truths this morning that we must reckon with. No one gets a pass. We can't just put our heads in the sand and say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. This morning, the text of Scripture, the fact that there's an empty tomb, gives us at least a couple things that we must reason with and come to reckon with. Number one, the fact of an empty tomb. How are we going to give an account for that? What is the explanation for that? And so we'll dive in there in a bit. And then second, second, the fact that there's an observable transformation in these disciples. An observable transformation in these disciples that they go from, from fear and trembling to bold proclamation, even to the point of giving their lives. How do we explain these two historically verifiable observations? And this it's not just verifiable in the Word of God. You have historians like Josephus living immediately following this that, that speak to these observations. So how do we reckon with that? The fact of an empty tomb. There have been plenty of answers given, explanations given for how there's an empty tomb, literally from as early as the same week that Jesus died and was resurrected. Men have been trying to explain how it could have happened other than an actual resurrection. Many of them are, are goofy and silly explanations. I'll mention to you a few of them that have gained more traction and that are more popular explanations for why there's an empty tomb. One, some people say the reason it looked like an empty tomb is because the women went to the wrong tomb on that Sunday morning. <laughs> now, some preachers may be tempted to make a, a joke here about women and driving and sense of direction, following directions, but I won't do that. I'm not that foolish. I know where my next meal's coming from, and uh, I'm not going to do that. And frankly, I think this explanation is an insult to these women as if they were just daft and, and couldn't, couldn't think for themselves. I think, it's, I think it's an insult to your intelligence, too, that somebody would try to reason in this way. Well, they just went to the wrong place. Really? Second, some say the reason that there was an empty tomb is because Jesus was never really dead. Now, if you have uh, Muslim friends or you work in a workplace, you have Muslims that sit across from you in a desk, this is likely what they will say. This is what their doctrine says. We'll circle back there in a moment. Number three, some people say 
that the reason there was an empty tomb is that the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus and then fabricated this entire story about a resurrection. We'll circle back there in a moment as well. And then number four, the body of Jesus was stolen, but it wasn't by the disciples. It was by the Jewish authorities. So again, kind of four explanations people have given. And all of these answers have been given for why there was an empty tomb. I think it's our job this morning. I think it's our job as as, as human beings on the face of this planet to analyze these answers and, and see how they square with the biblical and historical record. Did any of these explanations add up? Further, once we begin to ask those questions, we need to be ready to ask the next question. What if the resurrection actually happened? What if it's true? What if the whole thing is not a lie, it's not a myth, it's not a fairy tale, but it actually happened? Today's April Fool's. What if the resurrection was not an April Fool's joke? It was an actual event that happened in history. What are the implications of it all being true? So you guys remember Paul? Paul was a, an apostle, but before he was an apostle, if you remember, he was a hater of Christians. He hated the message of the resurrection so much that he actually tried to extinguish it. And he was on his way to murder and persecute Christians for preaching and teaching about the resurrection. When God spoke to him, Christ was revealed to him, and he became a follower of Jesus. You want to talk about a plot twist, right? The guy who's going to kill Christians becomes one. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, but that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. The implications of that being that, well, if they're still alive, while Peter's writing and saying this, they could speak up and refute the claim if it were not true. He goes on in that chapter of 1 Corinthians to drive home this point, that if the resurrection has not happened, then we're all fools. That the resurrection of Jesus is the game changer in the history of mankind. That if he's not alive, any hope that we have of being forgiven of our sins, any hope that we have of heaven or eternal life, if he's not risen, then all of that's a fairy tale and it's worthless. However, if it has happened, it's changed everything. And Paul's making it clear here that the resurrection is the focal point of Christianity. In fact, you don't have Christianity without a resurrection. There's no such thing as a Christianity that's just moralism, right? There's no such thing as a Christianity where you just do good deeds and you're kind and you're a loving person and you're a good neighbor and you're gentle and peaceful. But then on the other side of that, there's these few like radicals and crazies that believe in a resurrection, and, uh, and then that, that, that a man was living, and he literally died, and then he, in three days, rose again. And that's just for, like, the extremists. The rest of us are okay just being moralistic Christians that are, that, are, that are good folks, loving our neighbor, devoid of any supernatural talk. No, friends, the resurrection is the hinge around which everything else swings. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity falls apart. It falls apart completely. And you may be thinking, Matt, well, that, that, uh, yeah, that sounds great, but what you're actually doing with this resurrection talk is asking me to step out on blind faith. You're, you're calling me to step out on blind faith. 
that I need to stop thinking, somehow turn off my brain and my ability to reason and just start believing in blind faith. No, friends. Some religions, some cults will call for you to, to have blind faith, but the Bible does not. It's not written the same way. The Bible is presented to you as evidence, as an account of someone's life, death, and resurrection. And the Bible provides evidence for us to think, to reason, to evaluate, to analyze. Is this true? And this in itself, I think, is probably a problem in our our day and age, right? The ability to reason and think. You think about our culture and and how, how feelings have replaced facts. How feelings, how I feel about a certain issue has replaced facts, what actually happened in the issue. You think about your nightly news. You turn on the news at night, and a news reporter comes up. How many times have they asked someone in an interview, how does this make you feel? How did you feel when this happened at your school? Instead of, what happened? What are the facts? What actually happened? Social media is bombarded with feelings. We, we post on Instagram and Facebook about how we feel. We even have in our culture, get this, this is unprecedented in the history of mankind. We have emojis that tell how we feel when we don't feel like typing it out. That's how much feelings have captivated our culture. You can't even watch a sporting event without the, the producers trying to catch you right in the feels, right? You're watching a, a golf game, right? And it gets close to the end. The winner's obvious. There's somebody that's several strokes ahead. All of a sudden, the cushy piano music begins to play, and the stories start coming, right? Like the commentators begin to talk about, well, you know, this guy, he, he really deserves the win here. Why? Because his, his dad's fourth cousin just had knee surgery, and his pet parakeet died. This guy deserves the win. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm trying to watch a golf tournament. Like you could kill the piano music and, and turn off the soap opera. I'm just interested in watching a sporting event. Do you really think I'm so dumb as to not understand the score and that this guy's about to beat these other guys, that you have to put all this touchy-feely junk in there? Our culture is so captivated by feelings that we've lost the, the idea of being able to reason and analyze and, and study and see, is this true? Is this factual? Did it happen? When it comes to Christianity and the resurrection, you don't have to turn off your brain. You don't have to just go with the touchy-feely, blind faith stuff. Turn up the music. Light the candles. Begin to talk in a real spiritual voice, and we'll hold hands, and and let's just see if we can convince people to turn off their brains and, and feel their way into this issue. No, friends. The Bible says to think deeply on these issues. John writes so that we can understand and know. So let's circle back. I told you we would. Some have said that the reason there was an empty tomb was because Jesus was never really dead. Jesus was never really dead. Now, there's different versions of this explanation. One of them, though, and one of the more popular ones, is that one of the thieves, you remember Jesus was crucified and there were two thieves, one on each side of him. One of the popular versions of this story says that one of those thieves was actually a doctor, (laughs) doctor thief. And that when they, uh, they hung them on the cross, all three of them, n- none of them were really dead. And so they were placed in a tomb together with a doctor thief who could patch them up. And in three days, they all just come walking out together and were able to roll the stone back and do so. Are you kidding me? That takes more faith to believe than the actual historical record. That takes a bigger leap of blind faith, right? 
don't you think, and here's, here's another issue with this whole dilemma with Jesus not being really dead, don't you think the Roman soldiers knew the difference between someone living and someone who was dead? I mean, that's their whole job. That's their livelihood. They were executioners. They killed people for a living. And so they come to Jesus and they stab a spear in his side and it flows with blood and water. And they know, because they've seen numerous times, this is a dead man. Like, that just makes sense. They knew the difference. They're not idiots. And that's not enough. John chapter 19. If you still have your Bibles, you can, you can scroll there with me. John chapter 19. We see Nicodemus. The text tells us, Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus in the night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Don't turn off your brains here, friends. Think about this. What would be the chances of you at home, you've just had a hard day's work, you're asleep on the couch, alive, asleep on the couch, and some guys come up in your home, and they begin to wrap you. No, no I'm sorry. The text says bind your body in the, the sheets that you're laying on, and then they continue by dousing your body in 75 pounds of oils and fragrances and aloes, what's the chances of all of that happening and you be anything other than dead, right? No, friends, this explanation doesn't hold up. Jesus was dead. What about the second one? The tomb was empty because Jesus was dead, but the disciples stole his body. His followers stole his body. Now, this is an old one. You see this one in the scriptures. As soon as Jesus had died and the body was, uh, Jesus was resurrected, the Jewish leaders begin to, to circulate this, this, uh, this, this explanation. They actually went and said, hey, we'll pay you. We'll bribe you. We'll pay you if you'll just say you're the ones that stole him, right? So this explanation, Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. If that's where you're going to go, when it's not, it's not a new explanation, but if that's where you're going to go, then you have to say, watch this, you have to say that the disciples knew that Jesus was dead, like dead, dead. They knew he was dead, and they went and stole him, and they went and hid him somewhere else, and then they all came together and decided, hey, let's go out and get ourselves killed by saying that he's risen. And you may be thinking, well, Matt, there are religious martyrs all the time that kill themselves for a lie. Muslim extremists that strap bombs to their bodies and blow themselves up all in the name of Muhammad. Well, yeah, we see that all the time. We see things like that way too often. But here's the difference, friends. Fanatics that die for a cause believe that cause to be true. And if you're going to use this explanation to explain an empty tomb, then you're saying that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then they knew where it was at, and then they created this lie, and then they went and died for it. That's the difference. This explanation of the resurrection says the disciples knew the lie because it was indeed their lie, and then they went and died to protect this lie that they fabricated. This doesn't hold water, friends. What about the third one? The reason there was an empty tomb was because the Jews stole the body of Jesus. That he really was dead, but the Jews stole his body. What motivation would there be for that? If you remember, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark together. Jesus has said three times in the Gospels that he would die, and then in three days he would be risen. 
And so if his Jewish enemies stole his body, which I don't know what their purpose would be in that in the first place, but if they did, why wouldn't they just reveal the body on the fourth day, make Jesus a liar, and squash this whole Christianity movement from the beginning? Friends, these explanations don't hold up. Sure, there are others. These are the three most popular. But would you risk your eternity on one of these explanations that simply do not stack up against the evidence? Friends, the Bible, every word of your New Testament is written with the conviction that Jesus died, actually died, and was raised again. Every word of your Bible was written with that conviction. Your New Testament writers that wrote the New Testament were not sitting down with pen and paper making up a story about Jesus. They were sitting down to write, to pass on that which they experienced, that which they, they saw, they heard, they experienced themselves, that Jesus had actually died and was raised again. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his disciples, in 1 John chapter 1 says this. He's saying the exact thing. That which was from the beginning, Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it. And we testify it to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, uh, John says. What is John saying? We're not making this stuff up. What motivation would we have to make this stuff up? We saw it. We heard him. We touched him. And further, we're writing to you so that you will believe. This is simply the evidence. It's what we've seen to be true. Weigh it for yourself. That's what John's saying. Hear the evidence and believe that you too may become sons and daughters of the king. So this morning... I think the question that we must wrestle with, every one of us in our own hearts, what if it's all true? What if this resurrection talk is not just a fairy tale, but what if it's true? If it's true, if it's true that the story of Jesus is not just some fairy tale or as the scriptures say, just some myth or, or some, some idle tale. If it's true, then this story about Jesus is not just about a guy that had some really good ideas. It's not just about this Galilean carpenter who came to earth to show us how to love one another. Friends, if this is all true, then what we have is the God of the universe going and doing something on behalf of mankind. What we have is the God of the universe leaving heaven and being beaten and killed by his creation. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would God put on flesh, step into time and space, and walk among us, and then be beaten and killed by his own creation? Because he was fixing it. He was redeeming the world. He was making it right. Everything that was broken by sin, everything that was broken by our rebellion, he was making it possible for mankind to have sins forgiven and be in a relationship with God. That's why the Bible plainly teaches, again, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ died for sins. Christ was buried and Christ was raised. That's why you can't separate Good Friday and Easter. 
You see what happened on Good Friday, the execution of Christ, and what happened on Easter, the resurrection of Christ, is one single monumental act in history. That God is doing something for humanity in the sending and the death and the resurrection of his son. To be a Christian, you must believe that truth. That's what we talk about when we, when we talk about the gospel. We say that word all the time. That's what we mean. That you must quit trusting in doing good to your neighbor. You must quit trusting on your attendance in church or comparing yourselves to other people. The only salvation possible is salvation whereby you run to Christ, trusting in his death and resurrection. The Bible says that he has achieved salvation for all those who trust him. He's not achieved salvation for those who will say, yeah, you know, I believe there was this guy in history named Jesus that lived in Galilee. He's not achieved salvation for the one that would say, yeah, you know, Jesus had some really great things to teach us in his sermons. That's admirable. He's not achieved salvation for those that would say, yeah, Jesus is, 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 is good, but I'm, I'm trying to clean myself up. I'm trying to clean my act up and turn over a new leaf. Jesus has not achieved salvation for those. Jesus has achieved salvation for the one who will say, yes, Jesus, I trust in your death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sin. And I'm emphasizing that because I want to ask you a very personal question. It's perhaps the most important question anyone has ever asked you. Don't worry, I won't embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand or call you out. But please hear me this morning. Have you ever come to Jesus and trusted him? Trusted him like life depends on it, because it does. Well, what does that look like? It looks like coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I know the problem is not in this world. We can look around and see that we live in a messed up world. There's brokenness everywhere we turn. The problem, though, is, is that we would come to Jesus and say, I realize that the problem is my mess. My sin, my rebellion, I've broken your law, God. And Jesus, you are the only one that can set me free. Jesus, you are the only one that can bring me into the presence of God. You may be thinking, well, Matt, yeah, that, that all sounds okay, except for this part where you called out my sin. Now you're kind of meddling a little bit. Why do you got to talk about my sin, my habits, addictions, my shortcomings? Well, you see, our sins have to be dealt with. They are what separate us from a holy God. He's perfect and he's holy, and our sin separates for us, from us from him. And we try to deal with our sin on our own, right? Like we play the comparison game, like, I know I'm not as good as I should be, but on the whole, I'm a whole lot better than they are. Have you seen the kind of stuff that they're involved in? At least I'm not doing that. Or we play the cover-up game, right? Like, I'm not perfect, I realize I've messed up a few times over here, but do you see all the good I'm doing over here? The kind of dad I am or the kind of husband I am, surely my good is outweighing my bad. Like it's this scale, like if it, if it outweighs the bad, then I'll get a pass, right? No, wrong. The Bible says there's two ways that our sin can be dealt with. Number one, we come to the end of our lives and we're punished to an eternal hell, literal hell, suffering forever, all eternity, to pay the consequences of our rebellion. Or there's a glorious second option here. There's a glorious second way that our sins can be dealt with, that we trust 
in Christ all-powerful death and resurrection. That his death on the cross and his resurrection, his sinless life was the sacrifice that was the payment for our rebellion, the penalty for our sin. The Bible's very straightforward here. Paul, again, in Romans, says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see what's there. It's a conviction of heart. There's a confession from your lips. There's a transformation of your life. Friends, that's what the gospel does. That's what I say. When, when you come to this, this awareness, when the Spirit of God reveals to you that all of this is true and it's not just some fairy tale, friends, that's why you can't just go on living like nothing changed. Because this truth, this, uh, uh, this truth that we read in the Scriptures changes everything. That if a man was literally dead and came back from dead, he raised again to conquer our sin and to pay our penalty, then you give your lives to this king. Anything short of that is nonsense. That someone would die so that you could eternally spend, uh, so you could spend eternity with the Father. You give your life to this king. This king is worth worshiping. This king is worth trusting with everything you have. And watch how incredible this is, and we're closing. Watch how incredible this is. You may have came this morning and, and then just seemed like the thing to do on Easter. Thing, the thing to do on an Easter Sunday. You may be thinking, I, I don't believe in spiritual things. I don't like organized religion. I don't like the supernatural. None of that makes sense to me. Friends, right now, something supernatural is happening in every one of us. At this moment, something supernatural is happening in every one of us. You're like, what do you mean, Matt? That, that seems a bit strange. I can do nothing. Matt James can do absolutely nothing to move you one inch, one centimeter closer to trusting Christ for salvation in the way that we've been talking. I can do nothing to move you one inch closer to confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and following Jesus Christ. I can do nothing to do that, but he can. He can. And here's the greatest evidence to the resurrection. Here's the greatest evidence that Jesus is alive at this very moment is that the fact that he is working in this room. The greatest evidence that Christ is risen is that right now he is convincing many of you that what the Bible says is absolutely true. Unbelievers and believers alike. Right now, if you've been a Christian for 70 years, then something supernatural happens when you hear the word of God, when you hear the gospel and the spirit starts to work in your heart. You believe, hey, this stuff is true. This is the hope that I have for all eternity. This is the one I've trusted. That's something supernatural occurring inside of you as the spirit of God works in you. That the Bible, the scriptures, and the spirit of God come together and they work in our hearts. So in your heart right now, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're a, you're a Christian that's been following Christ for your, you know, 60 years, or you're a skeptic and you came here just because you felt like you were obligated to. One of two things is happening right now. Either one, the Spirit of God is affirming this to be true in your heart. That's supernatural. That's evidence he's alive. Or two, Satan would love nothing more to convince you that all of this is just a fairy tale. It's a myth. And you've got something better to do when you leave here. A family gathering to go to. Something more entertaining than this. And Satan would love nothing more than to get you to turn off right now. And not give 
uh, weight to what the scriptures say. And friends, whether you want to admit it or not, that's supernatural as well. Are you in that first scenario this morning? You came here because you were guilt-tripped. You came here because a wife drug you. You came here because it just feels like the thing to do if you've been raised around Christianity. And as the word began being explained, it was just noise to you. It sounded like static in a TV when it's not receiving signal, just and it didn't make sense, and you're just ready to get out of here, and it's kind of hot in here, and I could be doing so many other things on a pretty day like this. But then the more that you listened, you began to realize that God is speaking to me, that this stuff makes sense. And for the first time, you realize, I think he's calling me. I think he's calling my name. I think he's showing me that his death was in my place. That he took my sin, my guilt, my shame to the cross, and then he rose again to show me that he had defeated it. This is the first time I've heard this story all my life, but this is the first time it's ever made any sense to me that Jesus gave his life to save mine. What if all this is true? Listen, friends, it's all true. And here's the reality that is the most glorious truth in the entire universe. And this king is worth giving your life to. Will you give your life to him today? As Michael and the praise team come. Ask yourself, is this true? And am I trusting him? And if not, give your life to him today. Give your life to him today. If that's you, I want to leave you in some next steps. If that's you, if you know that Christ is dealing with you, if you know that the truth of the word that you've heard today in the scriptures, that the tomb is empty, if you know he's calling your name and calling you to himself, as these guys begin to sing, we're going to stand. Matter of fact, you can go ahead and stand. Everyone, please stand. And we're going to sing. We're going to worship Jesus because he's conquered the grave. We're going to worship Jesus because he's alive this morning. And here's what's the next step for you. If you're here this morning, you've never given your heart and life to Christ. There are some men and women right by the doors in the back, the entrance that you came in. Lee and Laura and Jessica and David, many, many folks back there at the back. Go and talk to one of them and say, hey, I think that's me that he's calling today. I think it's me that I, I'm the one that needs to give my life to him today. He has been doing something in my heart as we've been sitting here, and I need to give my life to him. Can you show me how to do that? Or if you just want someone to pray with you, you would say, hey, I'm, I'm walking through stuff right now at work. I'm walking through stuff in life that is awful, and I just need prayer. There's some folks in the back that wouldn't just do that because we're at church right now. They would do that because they love you, and they would love nothing more than to pray with you. Go grab one of those folks by the hand and say, hey, I, I need to talk right now. Spirit's doing something in my heart. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to join the praise team. We're going to sing. We're going to worship Jesus. But as soon as I finish praying, praying, you make a move. You step out and go talk to one of these guys. Give your heart to Jesus today. He's the king worth giving your life to. He's worth trusting. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you, and we thank you that you would not even spare your own son. That though we were rebels, chasing after our own sin, chasing after our own way, running a hellbound race, 
you sent your son who put on flesh and lived a perfect life, never failing. And he went to the cross and took our sin there and he buried it in the tomb. And then he rose again, conquering death in the grave. Spirit, I pray that you would convince hearts of that truth this morning. I acknowledge before you and these folks gathered here today, Father, that I have, I have no strength, no authority, no power in which to do that, but your spirit does. Use your word today to transform hearts and lives. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Let's sing. Let's worship him.